Welcome back to Plenary Session. Recently, I went to a conference in Kansas City. It was the Cancer Center Directors Conference. It was a conference for Cancer Center Directors. And I was asked to present about precision oncology. And I gave an overview of all the work we've been doing, work that is pooled analysis of genome-targeted therapies and how many people benefit from FDA approvals, how many people are benefiting from umbrella and basket studies, and more. I'm going to make that talk available to you all today on Plenary Session. As always, Patreon backers will get access to the slides, and I'll make it available another way, which is if you follow Vinay Prasad, Observations and Thoughts, the Substack, I'll make the slides available there too. So two ways to get the slides if you're interested in this talk. And on that positive note, here it is, live from Kansas City. Well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I see that only the elite remain in this auditorium. Good. Good. I'm glad to see it. I'm glad to see it. So I'm going to talk to you about the state of precision oncology. It's going to be a broad overview. Um, by way of background, I'm, uh, I'm a practicing hemonc doctor. I work at the, the San Francisco General Hospital and the VA, but I'm primarily a professor of epidemiology. So what I show you is going to come with the perspective of an epidemiologist looking very broadly at the field. And so hopefully it'll put some of what you hear later in context. In terms of conflict of interest, I'm the author of two books, but they were published by Johns Hopkins University Press. So it makes you aspire for minimum wage, actually. Yeah. So in what I show you, I'm going to show you all of the data. Uh, so by all of the data, I really mean for most of the things I show you, it will be all of the data. We have performed systematic reviews using equator methods for most of these topics where we have collected, I think, every published report uh, under these headings. And then I pooled all those published reports together, and I'm going to show you this. So this represents your work, the work of many others, global work. Um, and the pooling was done by dozens of people. So this is not just my labor, but this is the labor for maybe seven, eight years now. So we'll start with how we use the word precision oncology, precision medicine, what does it even mean? Then the FDA approved genomic drugs. Then we're gonna talk about all of the super responders in the literature, every single one, all the basket trials, all the umbrella trials. So this is the, the, the totality of precision oncology. <laughs> I want to put it in context, you know, these were quotes that I started hearing about a decade ago in oncology, um, things that I think we still or many people still aspire to. We will no longer use histology to define cancer, we will use mutations. You know, you'll, you, you won't be a kidney cancer doctor, you'll be an FGFR doctor. Um, every patient will be eligible for one or a combination of targeted drugs the moment we unlock the signature of your tumor. And we are accelerating science. We're seeing exponential growth in precision methods. We're reaching an inflection point in history. So these are things we hear. This was a graphic that was put forth maybe about 10 years ago now by the MD Anderson Group. And I think it, it really shows what the vision is, that you will undergo molecular profiling and that irrespective of histology, you will be paired with a therapy. So somebody with breast cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, and urothelial cancer, they might all get the red pill, for instance. This was work that was done by Audrey Tran, who's now a resident at UCSF, but she was a medical student at the time, where we look at precision oncology, that term in the biomedical literature, and we look at five different years. And in each of these years, we sample between, you know, in some years, we're sampling all of the articles that use the term, and in other years, we're sampling, you know, a set of these articles. And we're coding every instance of the term precision oncology by what they mean. Sometimes they mean 
a targeted therapy with no, with uh, directed towards a known target, something like uh, imatinib for BCR able and CML, or sunitinib for you know tyrosine kinase in uh, for for VEGF in uh, in uh, kidney cancer. Um, sometimes they mean molecular biomarker profiling. Sometimes they mean xenografts and mouse avatars. And each one of these things is depicted in a colored circle. And this is a Euler's diagram. So what is it trying to show you? Between 2011, 2013, 2015, 2017, 2019, there's been an expansion in the use of precision oncology in the literature. But when people use the term, they use it to mean different things. All of these things have been used. Some gain popularity, like that red circle, clinical imaging-based profiling, and then start to lose popularity. And so to some degree, we have clonal selection even in how we use the language. That precision oncology doesn't just mean one thing. It means what we're talking about in the moment. And it is shifting as technology is shifting. It's shifting as, as, our, as, as our therapies are shifting. So let's talk about the FDA-approved drugs. I'm going to show you every single drug that's FDA approved where the doctor has to test for a mutation and if present, they'll give the drug. Most of these are tumor specific. So for instance, if you have ALK rearrangements in lung cancer, you can get electinib. But six of them are now tumor agnostic, irrespective of the tissue of origin, we're going to give you the drug. Okay, so these are all the drugs. And the question we set out to answer was, of the 600,000 Americans who will die this year of metastatic cancer, what percentage of them might be eligible for taking one of these drugs? So that's a combination of the frequency of the cancer and the frequency of the mutation. We're putting that all together. And for the agnostic approvals, we're multiplying that across all the different tissues and the frequency with which they appear. Okay, and then we're doing this every single year, year by year. <coughs> so first, this was our first publication, which came out in uh, 2018 in JAM Oncology. This was Who Benefits from Genome-Driven Oncology. And, you know, we reached this conclusion, which was that about 8.3% of U.S. cancer patients would be eligible for these therapies, people with metastatic or unresectable tumors. And the breakdown is, you know, you see IDH inhibitors, BRAF inhibitors, FLT3-ITD inhibitors, ROS1, ALK, HER2. Uh, you see the gamut. The biggest chunk up there is the green chunk. That's EGFR lung cancer. Why? Because lung cancer non-small cell is so dominant, and EGFR is the most frequent aberration that's druggable at the time. And so many people ask me, you know, are you a glass half full, glass half empty person? I'm actually an optimist. I'm a glass half full person, but in this case, it was only about 8% full at the time of this study, which means there was substantive room for improvement. When you plot it out year by year, this is our updated publication that appeared in the Annals of Oncology, we're plotting it out year by year, the market share of all of these drugs, all the different tumors. We brought it forward two years to 2020, and, you know, the story that you see is a story of, I think, slow, steady upwards growth, maybe about one and one and a half percentage points per year, increased uptake of these therapies. These are all the FDA-approved therapies. In this slide, I've superimposed the cost of sequencing. Uh, the scale for the sequencing cost is plummeting logfold. So you're seeing a reduction from sequencing that is probably three, three and a half logfold reduction in the cost of sequencing. And we've seen an explosion in sequencing and I've lined up the years. And if the sequencing was the limiting reactant in coming up with new targets and new therapies, I think you would have seen a greater increase in the latter years on the right. You don't see that, which means to me that brute force sequencing may not be the barrier. It's no longer the barrier to developing targeted therapies for novel targets. Slow, steady, incremental progress. Progress, yes, but slow and steady. 
here I have done the same thing for all of the cytotoxic drugs, all of the checkpoint inhibitors, and I show you on the same scale that checkpoint inhibitors, uh, CTLA-4 antagonists and PDL one inhibition, they came on the scene recently, but they are garnering huge market share in part because you don't have to have a genomic aberration to get those drugs. And so they have really kind of still dominate the landscape of therapies. Okay, let's talk about tissue agnostic approvals. These are the, at the time when I put the slide together, there were five of them. Now there are six. These are FDA approvals where it doesn't matter what histology you come in with, as long as you have the mutation or the molecular alteration, you can get the drug, like MSI high tumors, and you can get pembrolizumab. So here's what we did here. Um, oh. For each one of these tissue agnostic approvals, I'm plotting the response rate within a tissue. So the first panel, BRAF, this is the response rate, and it varies from some tumor types. It has no response rate. If you have multiple myeloma and a BRAF V600 mutation, you're not going to get a response. And some tumor types, Erdheim-Chester, some of these rarer syndromes, you're going to have a 100% response. I've done the same thing for MMR mismatch repair deficient tumors. I've done the same thing for tropomycin receptor kinase fusion, the same thing for, for TMB. And I'm going to add selpercatinib up here too. What's the point I want to show you? The point I want to show you is that there is still a lot of variation by tissue. It's not just having the mutation, there's significant variation by the tissue in which the mutation arises as to the response rate. And in fact, there's more variability within the mutation between the tissues than there is across the mutations. All right, let me show you the pool data. First pool data of all super responders and all basket trials and all umbrella studies. So many years ago, I was, reading, I was reading the literature and I read about a patient with anaplastic thyroid cancer. She was 71 and she had an ALK mutation. They gave her crizotinib. She had six months response, which is exquisite. The median survival of this tumor is four months from diagnosis. She's doing six months. But it wasn't the first drug she got, it was the second drug she got. And when you looked in the history, you found that before she even got the crizotinib, she had lived two years with anaplastic thyroid cancer. And that to me suggests that maybe it's the crizotinib, but maybe she also just had indolent biology. She's already the 99th percentile of somebody with this disease. And so then we set out to collect every single case report we possibly could. And we, here's a swim, swimmer's plot. The colored portion tells you how well they do on the super responder drug. And the gray portion tells you how well they did before getting that drug. And what I want to convince you is that I'm entirely convinced somebody who has a short gray and a long green is really benefiting from the new drug. But if you have a long gray and a short green, you just have indolent biology or pan-sensitive biology. I'm not sure you have a super response to what's new. We created a new visualization tool. We call it the iceberg plot. It hasn't really taken off yet, so I'm hoping this will do the trick. It's the iceberg plot. And everything below the waterline is how well they did on therapies prior to the novel drug, and everything above the waterline is how well they're doing on the novel drug. And the point here is that, again, when you have a huge iceberg under the water and a very small part above the water, it's more indicative of, I think, indolent or pan-sensitive tumor biology and not necessarily that you have the magic key that fits the lock. This is, I'll skip for the sake of time, basket trials. Now, basket trials, by definition, it doesn't matter what histology you have. It doesn't matter if you have kidney cancer, bladder cancer. It doesn't matter what cancer you have, as long as you have the mutation. We've done some work looking at all basket trials. One thing we find is that if you pool all the now 90 published basket trial studies, the response rate does vary depending on the mutation. 
I mean, the tropomycin receptor kinase fusion is an exquisite response rate. Um, TSC or mTOR mutations are pretty good, but there are some mutations where the response rate gets down below 10%. And many years ago, Chris Grady and colleagues, they took all the NCI drugs, the cytotoxic drugs, tested in the 1990s in phase one, and they found that those had a 14% response rate in multiply relapsed tumor settings. So I think when you get down below 10%, you really have to wonder, is what we're doing anything better than coming up with the newest paclitaxel, for instance? Um, but, you know, some of them are really good. Okay, here's a graph that will just take one second to explain. I took every basket trial, and I extracted the tumor types of all the basket studies. And on one axis, we plot the incidence of the tumor. Okay, so if you have salivary gland cancer, that's super rare. If you have breast cancer, it's super common. On the other axis, we plot the number of patients pooled in the basket. And the red line is a one-to-one -one line, showing equivalence. Okay, and the blue line is a regression line. What does this tell you? If we were enrolling patients in basket studies at the exact same proportion they exist in the population, that red line and blue line will be parallel. But if we enroll disproportionately rarer tumor types in basket studies, then the blue line will have a shallower slope than the red line. And that's indeed what we see. Which suggests to me that perhaps for very common tumors, it isn't just one or two genetic aberrations that's the culprit. It is a fractured genome, the product of decades of environmental damage and decades of DNA uh, deficiencies and repair processes. Okay, we did the same thing, looking at variability within a basket versus between baskets. I'll wrap it up. Okay, within baskets versus between baskets, and we find the same pattern here. Okay, I'm going to skip the umbrella trials for now. Um, I will end with my conclusion. My conclusions from this. Precision oncology, the term is changing. It's mutating. It's not static. It is a living term, and thus always judging it is a difficult thing because it doesn't mean exactly today what it meant five years ago. The FDA-approved genomic drugs are terrific. I use them every day in my practice. They're remarkable for the patients who respond. But we can't forget that it's only 14% of U.S. cancer patients as of this date. Tissue agnostic approvals. Histology actually probably does matter. We don't have the sample size to look for interaction, but there very likely is interaction. Every suggestion shows interaction. So we, we think we'll be the FGFR doctor, but it might be very different in one versus the other. For the super responders, I think many of these case reports are indolent biology, and we should be careful not to fool ourselves. And for basket trials, I think rare disease is overrepresented and histology matters. So these are the people who put together this work. And uh, if you like this talk, Future Things to Explore, I have a YouTube channel where we just talk about cancer trials. It's under, it's under a playlist. Uh, and I host a podcast in oncology called Plenary Session. And I wrote a book about cancer drug approval that you might find interesting. So thank you for your time. <laughs>